Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are still in our Reclaim series, and today's conversation is about reclaiming suffering. A question for you to get started with is, where do you feel the most disconnected from yourself, from others, or from God? Enjoy. I guess in this whole idea of, of reclaiming, there was just a one very particular moment for me that happened about three or four years ago that shifted my perspective on a lot of things in life. But it came, um, again, I was on a civil rights tour. I was in the South and we were in Mississippi and um, we were at this museum that had just opened a new exhibit. And this exhibit essentially took you on a journey of what it would be like um, to go from Africa to, it ended at like the, an auction block in the American South. And so it was this um, really emotional kind of exhibit. And one part of it was this like mock-up as if it was like a sliver of what a slave ship would be like. And you w walked through it and you walk in and it's, um, it's like dark, it's like weird. And it has like, clay sculptures of bodies, how they were like stacked. And I made it halfway through and like freaked out, had like a panic attack and had to come back out and then meet everyone on the other end. Um, and so I'm already really feeling so many feelings. I'm like three days into this tour, like in the South, um, going through this exhibit, like just being, so, I'm so mad and I'm like sad and I have so many emotions and, um, we get to the end, I meet everyone kind of at the end of the exhibit because I couldn't even go through the whole thing. And this woman who's leading our, um, leading us through this uh, exhibit, the museum curator, she's this beautiful, dark-skinned African-American woman and she's the one who's narrating the whole thing. And so she gets to the point where she's on what would be an auction block in the American South. And then she starts telling the story and she goes through how many lives would be lost fighting to not be taken right from their home, how many lives would be lost um, on the ships, how many people would be lost to disease and sickness, how many people would jump off the side of the boat, um, how many people would be lost then in the transition getting to the auction block. And then she talked about what would happen there. You would be stripped down, these people would be naked, and then they would be um, bought and sold to then become slaves. And so, um, I'm already like, I just am like losing it. And as she's telling this, I'm getting so, I'm just, I'm, I'm feeling so many feelings and she's standing on there and after explaining this whole journey, she said, can you imagine? And just, as soon as she said that before she even finished her sentence, I finished it for her. Cause I was like, can you imagine like the anger? Can you imagine the hatred? Can you imagine um, the shame and the fear and um, in a moment, she changed so much for me because she stood there and she said, can you imagine the strength that it would have taken to even get this far? And then she like, went like this and she said, that's the blood that runs in my veins and that's why I'm proud to be a black woman. Now, I was already crying, but then I was like, <laughs> um, 
and everything changed, right? This, this story for me that had been the source of, I remember being in, in um, middle school and high school, you know, one of 10 black people in my entire school, so basically the only black person in every class, and every time they talk about slavery, um, being a little bit like embarrassed or like shameful, like, like why, you know what I mean? Like um, that story, this narrative that's a part of me has been a source of so much conflict. And in that moment, she changed everything for me. And I was like, yeah, I'm freaking proud. I'm like, we're strong. I can't believe we made it through that. Like I'm here, that's why I'm proud. Um, and I take that narrative with me over the past four years and, and I apply it to all areas of my life. And instead of seeing these, these moments as like causes of shame and anger and guilt, I, I am like, man, I'm, I can't believe I made it through that. You know, I'm, that is strong. I'm, I should be proud to be standing here because um, so far I've made it through everything I've ever been through, right? Um, and so that was a moment for me that shifted uh, that entire narrative um, that really gave me a sense of strength and pride where there once was a little bit of shame and a lot of anger. Um, now we're going to do more of that this morning. As we're in this Reclaim series, we're also in the middle of Lent. We talked about in here before that I didn't really practice Lent when I was growing up. It wasn't a thing, particularly in my evangelical tradition. It's something that I learned later on in life, that I learned the power of Lent because it's not just about my individual salvation project, which is a lot of what I learned in my evangelical upbringing, but it was more of an invitation into the broader church and into the liturgical calendar that corporately will share in suffering in this time. And so we're going to reclaim suffering today, and we're going to do that by looking at a really famous story from Jesus. But one of the really important reasons that we need to reclaim suffering is that we live in a culture that doesn't want to deal with suffering ever. We want a culture, particularly sunny California, come on, right? We want the sun to always be shining and the palm trees to be looking good. And we want our Tesla and we want like always to be making more money and the stock market always needs to be up and to the right. And we just don't want bad news, people. But that's not life. And then sometimes, again, in the tradition I grew up with, we didn't deal with suffering at all, so we would just turn up the music and we would tell people to sing louder or to raise their hand. And we would offer a theology that says that you don't really deal with the suffering. Jesus deals with all of the suffering for you. And yet, the more I went through life, the more I observed myself, and the more that I observed others, I realized, oh, that wasn't working. You were still suffering. You were still going through stuff. And we weren't giving you good information or a healthy transformation to deal with the real stuff that happens in the world, culturally or in the world of church. And so when we look at suffering, we have to reclaim it because we have to say, we will suffer. And that's not the end of the world. In fact, it's a really important part of beginning into a new world, into new life, into reconciling some things and reclaiming some things and renewing some things. And so suffering is a very important part of what it means to be human. It's part of the reason that I had Brittany share that, because we joke all of the time uh, that I don't know what it is like to be a gay black woman. Just spoiler alert. <laughs> and she doesn't know what it's like to be a straight white man. Spoiler alert. Um, I was thinking about this this morning as well. Like, why do we always go in that order when we describe that? Like, gay black woman? We're never like, black woman gay! <laughs> right? It's not a, that's not a thing. I thought that was really funny. I was thinking about that thing in the shower this morning and like laughed for like five minutes to myself, so. <laughs> I'm glad you find it funny as well. Um, so we joke all the time about like, oh, tell me what Mad Men's going like for you. Because it's like the most white male show that you can watch, right? 
Don Draper, like this wealthy dude, white picket fence. It's all about like the existentialism of being white in America and that life is supposed to look perfect on the outside, but it's really about the internal suffering that he's dealing with and that he's marketing to the world what happiness looks like and yet he's so discontent and unhappy inside. And I know nothing about lemonade, right? Besides the drink, right? I know nothing about what it means to be a black woman. I know nothing about, uh, I can watch Beyonce and lemonade, but I don't experience it in the same way that I watch Mad Men and vice versa for Britney. And so we were talking about the power of our shared experience, uh, how it is different, how we learn to honor one another's suffering, um, and at the same time recognize that it is different, right? Not all suffering is equal, but it's still important. Like the least interesting thing I hear from people all the time is like, well, I know I'm going through this, but there's like a kid in Africa who's starving. You're right, there is, but that's not your suffering. So don't compare that to this. That's a horrible tragedy that needs to be dealt with in the world. And your existential crisis might be a horrible tragedy that needs to be dealt with in this world. And that God is interested in all of it. And so we need to see corporate suffering in a different way if we're to honor and empathize and deal with uh, the suffering of the rest of the world. So in order to do that, we gotta talk about some dum-dums because they show up a lot in the Bible. And then we're gonna talk about some patterns that we see in the ministry and in the life of Jesus, which is not something that we're looking at to see what happened 2,000 years ago, but to look at how are there patterns in our own life that if Jesus shows us the very fullness of God and the very best of what it means to be human, then those patterns aren't a story that happened 2,000 years ago, but these are patterns that may be beneficial to make movement and transformation in our life right now. And if we can understand some of the patterns that Jesus is looking at, then we can honestly talk about suffering and the disconnection of union that we all experience, whether that be from ourselves or others or God. And then if we can do that, then we can talk about moving from bad to the best. And if we can do that, then we'll talk about my personal alchemy project and one of the ugliest cries I've had in a long time. So, more to come. Luke 6, verse 6, goes like this. On another Sabbath, he, Jesus, went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Again, Jesus is always working on the Sabbath for some reason. There's, there's a part of the disruption movement that Jesus is doing here. Sometimes you're wondering, what is he doing the other six days? But part of this is a, a way to challenge the systems that Jesus is in. So he works on a day that you're not supposed to do anything to make a point. Again, one of the weaknesses of Protestantism is that we took the Bible so literally that we missed the narrative of the Bible, and so we don't take it seriously. We're so busy parsing Greek words that we miss the forest of the trees. Are the trees to the forest? Which way is it supposed to go? Either way, we're missing something, right? That's the whole point. And so what Jesus is always doing is trying to point us out to something bigger, but you have to see what's taking place in the story and not just what are happening literally in each of the words. So Jesus is picking a day to do something when you're not supposed to do it for a reason. Then you have this man who has a shriveled right hand. And again, in the ancient world, you use two hands. Your right hand is what you do everything clean with. You eat with his hand. You shake with his hand. The left hand is what you do everything dirty with. So it's saying that this man was imbalanced in right, life, right? He had to use his left hand, the things that he does, uh, he cleans himself with, the same hand that he has to eat with. And in a culture where you have holiness laws, this man was now disconnected from the union of community and God and everyone else around you. So it's not just a shriveled hand, it's saying this guy lived in isolation and didn't know what it was like to actually participate fully in this community of God. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. 
But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Again, Jesus is great at theatrics. He's making a point. The one thing they're looking for me to do, I'm going to do it because they're so busy trying to do the moral right, they're missing out on the opportunity to actually do good in the world. And how many of us have been in churches where that's going on? Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to destroy, to save life or to destroy it? And I imagine there's like a giant pause here. And he looked around at them all, right? No one's saying anything. And then said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So we have some dum-dums. That's what I call the Pharisees and the religious leaders, right? They're just a bunch of dum-dums. They're always missing what's going on right in front of them. That sometimes we live in this world where we don't do it for the wrong reasons, but we do it for the reasons that we think that we are somehow protecting God. Has anyone ever heard that language before, right? That somehow we think that the God of the universe needs my verbal protection in this world, right? The God of the universe needs me to defend this God. That's a very weird God. Let's start there. Yet, we start there because, not because we're malicious or evil, but because law is comfortable. Law is good. Morality makes us feel safe. We know from psychological development that, right, if you put a bunch of five-year-olds on a playground and you tell them to go run around, but if you put a fence around that playground, they're going to play harder than they did without no fence. They feel safer immediately because there's a fence there. There's something about the early years of our life in which we need the laws, in which we need morality, in which we need concrete and absolute understandings of who God is. That is one thing. The thing that the church doesn't do well is saying, that's what you needed as a six-year-old. I don't see any six-year-olds here today. Right? You grew up now, and now we need to teach you to challenge those things to disrupt those things and to ask bigger questions because you don't live in a world in which there will always be fences around the playground. And you gotta learn to navigate in real life. Instead, what we do is we want church services and church gatherings to look a certain way and then there's the other 98% of our life that looks a completely other way. And there's a lot of people, statistics would tell us that 83% of the population in Los Angeles County, as in that many people, don't do the 2% game anymore. They don't go to church, right, even for what most of us have felt. This doesn't make any sense for my actual life in Los Angeles in 2018. So why would I continue to do that? And so we have to disrupt the system and challenge the norms in order to grow and to become healthier and more mature and transformed human beings. But we have to know the fact that there will always be dum-dums in this world who want to prevent that transformation. And I don't even say that like attacking somebody. I say that like understanding consciousness and where we're at. Um, I wasn't even going to speak on this, but I just thought of something. Ed Barron, Brittany's dad, he's posted the last couple of weeks on Facebook, um, just like inviting evangelicals into this conversation about Donald Trump. It's going really well. Uh, yes. Everybody is acting incredibly responsible and mature, and their arguments make sense. Is not what's happening on Ed Barron's Facebook feed right now. 
So I've been reading it with anticipation and a lot of interest. And a part of the I read it in trying to understand where other people are at. I'm not there. I don't understand some of the arguments that are being made, but I want to understand for the sake of at least honoring the fact that they're human beings, right? Just because we don't ideologically agree on apparently a lot of things doesn't mean that I can't see them as a human being, right? Or doesn't mean that I can't somehow honor them in a different way. And yet, that's what I feel like happens in the reverse order. So when it comes to the evolution of consciousness, you can look backwards into consciousness. So you have to start with a concrete idea, disrupt and grow out of that idea, and then reclaim and renew a new set of values, ideas, and practices in your life. That's like a normal flow of things. But if you have people who are stuck over here, and they're still operating within a playground with fences around it, and have never left that playground, I don't blame them for the fact that they've never left the playground. I want to be angry at them. I want to scream at them. You are not helping your own cause, right? People are reading these posts and are less interested in Jesus and kingdom because of the things that you're talking about. But I don't blame you for not realizing that because you're operating within the confines of a gate. Just as much as when I look at my liberal or more progressive friends, I don't blame them when I hear constant critique going on of all the people in the fence because they're now outside of the fence, particularly when a lot of times liberal or progressive friends are challenging these ideas, but they're not doing anything about it themselves, right? That's why, that's why liberals lost an election, because you have a whole swath of population of, of the world saying, great, you keep talking about equality, but you're not willing to do anything about it except go on a few marches. Those are hard words. I'm not saying that we, sh I'm saying we should go on those marches, but I'm saying we have to continue to keep doing more in order for the world to change. We have to put our, ourselves on the line in some ways to challenge some of these ideals. We, we have to be the ones completely engaged in the neighborhood in a different way if we want to see these things change. We can't just con talk about it and critique it. We have to be actively participating and living into it in a different way. So there's these patterns that Jesus points out. One of the patterns that Jesus points out is that he's constantly straddling the line of who's in and who's out. And so Jesus often is standing from the edge of the inside in order to bring people on the outside to the center of the circle. That if you're dealing with suffering, one of the things that you're dealing with is that you are disconnected from yourself at times, you're disconnected from others, or you're disconnected from God. That's what happens when any of us suffer. We become numb, we avoid, we can't see the world clearly, we can't see reality clearly, because we are honestly suffering with whatever it is that your suffering is. It might be very personal to you, it might be a corporate suffering that has nothing to do, uh, not nothing to do with you, but everything to do with the fact of the color of your skin or your gender or your sexuality. Um, there's all kinds of suffering that takes place in this world. And what Jesus always does is he names the suffering that's going on outside of the the circle in that culture. And again, this is what's really important. If we're going to take the Bible seriously, then we have to name some suffering that's going on that's different than in Jesus's day. We don't have Samaritans. We have DACA recipients. We have an LGBTQ community, right, who has suffered at the hands of a church. We have things like Black Lives Matter for a reason that we say Black Lives Matter, not just All Lives Matter, because we understand that there's a distinction of what's going on here, right? We support people who are kneeling at football games because we know it's beyond patriotism, that it's about calling out the injustices in the world. 
We have to constantly rename these things. That's why we get excited about high school kids who show us a better way of dealing with gun violence when the older people continue to talk about it and don't do a damn thing about it, right? So like Jesus, we have to straddle the circle of the inside and the outside. We can't just live in the playground and we can't be completely devoid of the playground. It can't be either or, it has to be both and if we wanna see the world change. So then what Jesus does is he invites people from the outside to the inside and he tells people on the inside to get to the outside. That's how Jesus challenges the systems. So in this story, we have this man who can't use his right hand, who's unclean by every standard in the world, and Jesus is forcing him to stand on the very inside of his circle, right? Not just on a Sabbath, but inside a synagogue, in the center of the religious institution, where everybody knows the holiness codes, where everyone is practicing morality to its highest degree, is where Jesus decides to disrupt the system. Because Jesus knows that we grow as human beings, not when we just critique who's inside the playground and who's outside of the playground, but when we can mutually look at one another and find a third way to live and to grow and to become human and to connect and live with God. And so Jesus invites this man to stand up in the center of his circle, where probably he deals with the most suffering. Right, this is the place where he's not allowed to be fully himself. This is the place where people tell him that he is limited. An ancient world perspective, particularly in a Jewish synagogue, is that if you have an ailment of any kind, there's a cause and effect relationship that is taking place here. Clearly you did something in which God or the gods would punish you by having a shriveled right hand. So this man is living, embodying his own suffering in this world. And most, many of us experience that as well. We're embodying our suffering in this world. That our very bodies are carrying our pain and the weight of things. We don't get to talk about that stuff always. We don't always get to like bring that stuff up in, in every environment that we want to, yet we carry that stuff with us somewhere. As we do these meditation practices, is the more that I've lived, in, lived into contemplative practices, I realize that as I quiet my mind, as I listen to my body, how much like I carry pain in like my gut right? And that when I'm really, really still and I'm listening to God and to myself, I can just feel that pain and how much I want to avoid it. And I want to spend so much time up here like debating theology or other people and like desperately I want to get on, in on the Ed Barron post, right? And like shred some fools. Like I do! But I'm going to deal with the pain of the world up here and Jesus is trying to deal with the pain of the world in a deeper way. Jesus is trying to get to the thing behind the thing, trying to get to the suffering that we all deal with in our unique ways and to call that out. And that's why Jesus invites us into this both and world where he's reversing the circles and he's reversing who's in and who's out. And Jesus always does it by doing a few things, addressing a few patterns that happen. First, Jesus disrupts that part of evolution, part of growth, part of transformation is disrupting the norm that you are currently living within. So if you call yourself the conservative living within the playground walls, that norm has to be disrupted. If you call yourself the liberal living outside the playground walls, that norm has to be disrupted in order for us to grow in transformation of who Jesus is and who we are as human beings. Jesus is always pushing us outside of our norms in some way. In evolutionary biology, we know that there's gaps in our timeline. We know that things like eyeballs and wings didn't happen progressively or slowly over time, right? There used to be thinking about that, that if we just had an endless amount of time, then there would just be enough slow mutations that would take place in which like 
a wing came out of nowhere or something like that. But we don't know how wings got here a lot of times, and we don't know how like, things like eye bells got here. And part of the reason for that is because of another science called physics that tells us that the universe is not infinitely long, it's 13.8 billion years. So if you do the math of physics in 13.8 billion years and you mix that with evolutionary biology, we don't have enough time to get things like eyeballs and wings. So science at least is honest enough to say, we don't know, let's hypothesize. The church is not as honest enough to do that. We wanna be a little bit more concrete and a little bit more absolute. Sometimes it gets us into some trouble, right? And so science says, we just know that it happened because here's the problem. You can't use a half a wing, right? You just like, don't like run to the cliff and start, shit, like this is not working. That's not how it works. You need a full wing to move forward. Not only do you need a full wing, there needed to be someone who also evolved with wings, who was in the opposite sex at the very same time as you in order for you to mate and have other offspring who are continuing that evolutionary um, creature, whatever you think that's called, right? organism forward in time. So science is telling us we know that there needs to be disruptions. We don't have all of the answers about how wings and eyeballs evolve. We know that they have. But what we do know from things like sociology and anthropology is that human beings don't grow, don't mature, don't transform without a major disruption taking place, right? And generally that disruption takes place around our suffering. The great movements of the world are not coming because the stock market is soaring. No, the great movements of the world are coming because of the injustice and inequality that is taking place within our individual and corporate suffering in the world. And so Jesus takes somebody who's suffering individually and within a system and disrupts everything right in front of their face. The dude grew a wink, right? Literally. The dude grew another hand in front of everyone, and that disrupts the system. You wouldn't think it would, but it does. Another thing that Jesus does is he not only disrupts, and not only does Jesus bring people from the outside to the inside, but the final pattern of what Jesus always does is Jesus questions. Jesus leaves things open for mystery. Jesus is asked 183 questions. He answers three of them. Jesus gives 307 questions. That should be telling to us. Again, not the, the context of what I grew up in. I grew up in a world in which we were given all of the answers, in which we had to tie everything up with a very clean bow and knew the appropriate Bible verse. And apparently, if you didn't use a Bible verse, and there somehow was no truth even behind it, so we're like pulling from some places, right, to somehow make truth about something. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus forces us into the questions because the questions forces us into mystery. Because there's no good answers for this question. What do we do with the problem of evil in the world? There's not a good answer. Just like there's not a great answer for what do you do with the problem of good in the world? Why, why was that even an option? How can I get to love and enjoy sunsets and like have babies and do all these other things? We have to take both the suffering and the good to ask questions in the world. And so Jesus invites us into question asking and the mystery. And so that's part of the pattern that Jesus invites us into if we're going to deal with suffering. And Jesus invites us into this pattern of moving either from the, from the outside to the inside or from the inside to the outside, wherever you find yourself. Jesus invites us into question asking in order to confront the suffering that we're dealing with. Because suffering starts with our understanding of ourselves, our observation of ourselves. 
A lower level of consciousness is the constant critique of where people are at over there. That's wonderful, and that's called an escape route, right? We constantly want to scapegoat somebody else, but the story of Jesus is the scapegoating stops with Jesus on the cross. Don't scapegoat anybody else. I'll take on being the final scapegoat so that you stop doing it to one another because the final thing that human beings will always do when we begin to scapegoat other people is we'll eventually kill them. And so Jesus says, let the violence and the killing and the death stop here so that you can enter into your own suffering and so that you don't have to avoid it. And you enter into your own suffering so that you can become more aware of yourself and your union to yourself and to others and to God because there's this awareness that Jesus is constantly dealing with that a lot of times we're disconnected from ourselves and from others and from God. And if the world's going to find healing, right, then we all need to find healing as individuals and then corporately. And then as we find healing, this goes back into the rest of our Reclaim series, then we begin to find a new identity. We begin to realize, oh, I'm a son and you're a daughter, or I'm a son and you're a daughter, or I'm loved and God is pleased with me. And if that can be true about me, then that can be true about you. And if that can be true about you, it could even be true about Donald Trump. No one wants to clap for that, and I understand. <laughs> but that's where the gospel has to take us. Is if it can be true about me, can it even be true about the person that I most want to scapegoat in the world? Because if not, then whether we live on the inside of that fence or the outside of the fence, then we're constantly just going to scapegoat other people, and we're going to create more suffering and more pain and more hurt in this world. So let's talk about that in really concrete ways now. One of the reasons I asked Brittany to share is because uh, I was going to share some of my own narrative as well about my own suffering. And our suffering is incredibly personal. Um, I don't know what it's like to be a gay black woman. She doesn't know what it's like to be a straight white man. It doesn't mean that we don't have suffering. It doesn't mean that we can't understand one another. What I find beautiful about a community like ours is the diversity of honesty and suffering that's taking place here. And the ways in which week to week people share that honestly with one another about where they're at. Um, and that we get to live in transformation in those things with one another. So my suffering starts when I'm a little boy. I don't know where the chicken or the egg came from. Uh, it starts for me being molested by a family member. Not knowing how to communicate that. I was six, I was seven. It starts with being a part of an evangelical community in which my body is bad, but some of my soul is good. So connecting with the dots of my body is bad, I've been told that, and I've been molested. I remember finding my dad's Playboys and somehow feeling when I looked at Playboys, right? I wasn't numb anymore. I felt something when I looked at that. And that was the beginning of a process for me that I grew up in a family that was pretty emotionally abusive and pretty verbally abusive. And so I learned to cope at a very early age by dealing with my pain and my suffering in the world with sexuality. That the pain that I was dealing with was incredibly overwhelming, but when I participated in some type of unhealthy sexuality, I didn't feel that anymore. And sometimes I actually felt good. I had no idea as a six and seven year old how that would play out in my adolescence when I dated. I had no idea how that would play out in the way that I treated women. Uh, I didn't know any of those things. I was just a young kid living, trying to cope with my pain in the world. And there began to become a war that took place within me. 
And so I remember Monday through Thursday coming home after school and reading my Bible because that's what you're supposed to do because my body was bad and your skin spoiler alert as a teenage boy and I had lustful thoughts. Crazy, I know. <clears throat> but then on Friday I would go out and I would drink and you know have sex and do all the other things um, that teenage boys often did. And, I, and, I, and then on Monday morning, weeping in my room once again, God, I'm so bad. You must hate me so much, make me clean again. And on and on the cycle went. Eventually, I get to college and I go to a conservative Christian university where I'm told another mythology. If I just get married, all of this will magically go away. That was so convenient. I was really excited about that. And I fall in love, right, with Carissa. And she is this healthy, beautiful wonderful, transformed human being. That was going to be the answers to all of the civil war that was taking place within me. The civil war that I can't talk with anybody about because I'm in a private Christian university and these are not things that we honestly deal with. These are things that we secretly deal with. And I get married and guess what? It didn't magically go away. I find myself two years into my marriage having multiple affairs on Carissa. Not because of her, because I was suffering inside. And the only way I've learned to cope my whole life is that the more I suffer, the more I find ways to go act out sexually because it helps me feel better. And I'm willing to blow up my entire life for that. A moment of grace for me is sitting on a corner in Glendora with Carissa, and she had just flown back two weeks before she had gone home after I'd admitted my affairs. And I thought she was coming back to tell me that she's getting a divorce. And in that moment, I'll always remember her looking right into my eyes and saying, I made a commitment to you, and I love you, and I'm willing to do this if you're willing to do this. We will all live within that playground structure and in the law because it's safe. And we live there at times because we haven't honestly experienced grace. But the moment that you honestly experience grace in the midst of your suffering, you see how insufficient the playground was for you. It worked as a little kid, but it's never gonna work for you as an adult. In that moment, I realized that those structures didn't work for my life anymore, and that my suffering is not working for my life anymore. I need something beyond that. And I tangibly experienced grace through the kindness and mercy and love of my wife. It was painful. It cost me something. It cost her a lot more. And we moved forward into to marriage with this. I begin to go to therapy and years later begin to realize, oh, I, I, I go to a 12-step program for sexual addiction because I realized, oh, I may have experienced grace, but that doesn't mean that these things are gone in me. It'll probably take a lifetime of rewiring who I am and re-understanding the world. That even today within me, when I experience extreme pain or suffering and the world doesn't go my way, my brain goes certain ways. I know that. And I can either pretend that it doesn't work that way and just continue to live in the playground. I continue to live out of the playground and just critique everyone else because I'm suffering, so I want to make everyone else miserable because I'm miserable. Or I can deal with my shit. And I deal with my shit by realizing that Jesus has invited me into my suffering and that Jesus invites me into a grace in which God will heal me in participating with that suffering, not by avoiding it or pretending like it was never there in the first place. 
But it's been a painful journey and a hard journey. I remember when we started New Abbey, I had some theories about what this community could be. One of those theories was that I just want a place in which we can honestly talk about all the things that we need to talk about. And so the only way that we're going to do that is if I start honestly sharing our stories. So remember early on, I started sharing these stories in the life of New Abbey and our community and about who I am in an effort to invite other people into participating in that as well. But in the beginning of New Abbey, I was so depressed. I had lived in a world for a long time where it was all about the numbers in a church, and I was preaching in front of thousands of people, and I was going to be the guy who wrote books and was speaking at different mega churches and all these other things. And yet, it was all of this world that was inside of this container, and it wasn't working for me, and it wasn't working for most of the people around me. So I started asking different questions. And one of the questions I started asking is, like, if I'm dealing with suffering in my own sexuality, then how do we not show grace and mercy to other people dealing with suffering in their sexuality, or however they're embodying their suffering in this world. And so I remember theoretically, when we began New Abbey, I just knew, hey, we're affirming. I don't know what that means, right? Because at the time, to be honest, I didn't know anyone who was gay. I'm sure I did, but I didn't know that I did, right? And then time went on, and we kept the theory of being affirming, and then eventually, like, you know, like Brittany started working here, and like gay people started showing up, and, it, and we started living into these things. Interestingly enough, gay people were not attracted to me by myself. It was fascinating. I'm taking a really long time to share this story because it's uncomfortable for me. Um, a month ago, I was in New Mexico with this living school program with Richard Rohr. And I find myself a lot of times when I go on to these spiritual retreats that I deal with the most pain because it's time we're most reflective and I see all of my wounds and for what they are. And so sometimes it's the biggest high that I'm dealing with, but it's also the biggest pain that I'm dealing with. And they offered spiritual direction and I didn't think that I was gonna do it, but I went to spiritual direction this day. She says, what do you wanna talk about? And I was still operating from up here somewhere. I was like, I don't know. Like, I thought you were gonna like, tell me some things that we were gonna talk about. And then I sat in silence for a few minutes, and then it's like I felt all of the pain that I carry around in my gut all the time. The suffering that I carry with me wherever I go, the suffering that I carry with me to cope with the world that hasn't gone anywhere, but it's just changed how I name it and how I look at it. And I started sharing with her the story of my sexual addiction and of my life and of the pain that I've encountered with it and what that looks like and, and the ways that I'm trying to deal with it. And she looks at me and she says, and how has your suffering been a gift? And it was a question that I wasn't ready for, and I just started like ugly crying for 10 minutes. Like I can't breathe, like water's coming everywhere, like keep handing me Kleenexes. Like I can't, I can't compose myself. Because I realized that there's been this journey that I've been on. One of the journeys that I've been on is this alchemy project for my life. One of the original things that I did is in order to cope with the world, whenever I had an emotion, I just imagined it like a little vial filled with some type of liquid. And whatever that emotion was, whatever was good or bad, if I didn't know how to deal with it, I just threw it in this bucket of sexuality and said, that's how I'm going to deal with it. Well, 20 years later, I found myself at this just giant pool of liquids all together, but I had no understanding of like my real emotions or my real pain or my real joys in the world. And for the last eight years of my life, I've been doing this reverse alchemy project where I'm like, oh, I know what that emotion is. It's not sexuality, it's joy. And like I like vial it back up and like I ride on and I put it on my little shelf and I'm trying to be mindful of who I am and what I got going on in my life. And I've been in that process for eight years of trying to find health and transformation in the midst of all of my suffering in that. But it wasn't until that moment a month ago in New Mexico when I started weeping that I realized the great gift that my suffering has been to me. 
as I've been in this reverse alchemy project, as I've actually been able to feel, as I've actually been able to take ownership, as I've asked honest questions with myself, as I've lived in real community with people outside of the playground and inside of the playground, it's changed the way that I operate in the world. When I realize I can't deal with my suffering on my own because there's evolutionary jumps that I'm not capable of and that I actually need Jesus to come along sometimes and help me grow some wings because I'll never do it on my own. When I accept the fact that I'm powerless and that I'm not the one who's going to figure it all out, but that I'm in desperate need of communion with God, with others, and with myself, the reverse alchemy has looked a lot different. And I was in that moment recognized the gift that my suffering has been to me. It's allowed me to see the world with so many more colors than I could have ever imagined. It also hit me in that moment. It's no wonder to me that our church is made up with so many people who have dealt with suffering in their own bodies, whether that because of sexuality or gender or all the other weird stuff that goes on in evangelicalism around the body, that even as a pastor, I'd been primed in some way with this kind of suffering to create space for others who've dealt with suffering in a different way, but we can still share in some commonality there. In some ways, we've been fucked up by a lot of other people, right? And we have to take some ownership about honestly who we are now so that we don't continue the suffering in the world. And this is an invitation for you all. That's my story. I believe that my suffering has been a gift for me and that my suffering has been a gift for others because it helps me see the world in a different way and it's helped me create space for others to heal in another way. I believe the same is true about everybody here. I hear it week to week. And so the invitation for you all is wherever your story, whether it's corporate, right, whatever it's the beautiful story that Brittany shared earlier, whatever it's an individual story, what, however you look at this Venn diagram of the suffering that you're enduring, how do we share that transparently with one another? How do we all come to the center of the room and say, this is what I got going on, and I want some other people to walk with me in it. This is real. So as you reflect over the next week, if you feel like you want to share your story of suffering in this season of Lent, that you want others to stand in solidarity with you in this opportunity for healing, would you come talk to me or Brittany? And we want to create space for you to share that and to help bring healing to other people who are in this room uh, for the sake of bringing healing to others. I'm going to take two minutes, and I just want you to close your eyes. And to take an opportunity to feel within yourself maybe where suffering is taking place. For some of you, you know where it is immediately, and you know what it is immediately. For some of you, honestly, it might be a really good season in which that suffering is not really there and present, and that's okay as well.
going to put a question up. And it's been a lot of heavy stuff. If this question works for you, great. If it doesn't, talk about something that stuck out to you. And it's how is your suffering a gift? Find the same people around you, take a few minutes, and then we'll come back together. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.